Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the French Rookie Podcast with me, Tim Groves, former Scotland back rower Johnny Beattie and ex-France hooker Benjamin Kayser. The results didn't quite go the way of the French sides in the European finals last weekend, but it was a hell of a couple of days of rugby and we'll get onto that shortly. But you were covering the Challenge Cup final, Benji, weren't you? So did you catch up with Chris Marceau for that glass of red? You've got one in your hand right now, but did you have one in your hand on Friday? Mate, so I, I caught up with him uh, for the quarterfinals, like like we we chatted about last week. Me, him, and Ice Toyaba had lunch and all that. This time they were not joking around. So not only was it not allowed on the pitch, but we, I weren't I wasn't allowed to mix with anyone. I didn't see any of the players. And Massey came with uh, Simon Shaw, and he was texting me, "Why are you?" But there was three bearers between him and I. I think things are unfortunately have escalated. You could clearly see it. Um, it's been no fun for the teams. I heard. I think the Toulon. I don't know about Bristol, but Toulon were in a hotel surrounded by police by the Tuesday. Uh, now there, there was there was zero zero fun uh, to it, but hey, that's that's the reality of where we're at. Huh? I don't know. It's been a tough week for you in in lockdown in France as well, Johnny. But before we come to you, I can't avoid the background, Benji. What room in the house are we in? What what's going on? Well, is I, it your I can't, house? Can't, can't you tell? Can't you tell, mate? It's literally <laughs> my life is in one room basically, and so we're going absolute baby steps. Of everything needs to gradually get better, and then Friday we finally got some windows, which in England uh, can can come pretty handy to be watertight, and then by Monday they were leaking already. So it's it's an up and down sort of emotion roller coaster, uh, but uh, yeah, this is my this is my living room slash podcast room, obviously slash dressing room uh, slash it's got, all, it's got half my old <laughs> all my kitchen. <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty handy. It's a pretty handy room. For those of you not watching on YouTube and listening on the podcast, boxes everywhere, but crucially, <laughs> just in the corner of the screen. Bottle of red's just been cracked open, so uh, you got to have your essentials. I'll get you through it, mate. Absolutely. And Johnny, so you are in lock- what stage of lockdown are we at? Where you are, uh, mate? I am now on. I'm on a now imposed by the social security of France ten day lockdown. Um, so we had, ugh, mate, just bad luck. So we had Scott Spedding and his missus and their boy around for lunch, along with um, a player who shall remain nameless from Biarritz. Um, he got tested on the Friday morning, came around to have um, a nice bit of steak and some red wine. And it turns out he got tested on Monday morning and he tested positive, as did 26 of the Buretts team. So because wow. we've been in contact with him, we've now got a seven-day lockdown completely um, and mate, just <laughs> keeping everything crossed that nothing is transmitted, everyone's okay, Mrs. okay, preggers. But if you don't hear from us in a, in a week chicken soup and Lucas isn't going to do it you're gonna to have to come find us send out a rescue party so it's, it's been a strange all week we're just hoping we get to the end and we test negative we've got a test on Friday so fingers crossed um, but it's been a bit of a stressful few days not ideal with the uh, the situation you're in so good luck with all of that we will come to the the Champions Cup final 
and where Benji was covering Toulon's game as well. But we should get our guest on, first of all. And in a way, I'm quite glad we're doing this interview remotely because just in case I ask some sort of controversial question, could be quite good that there's a bit of distance between us. He's a former teammate of yours, Benji. I'm sure he's a lovely guy. We're about to find out. But possibly one of the hardest men to ever play the game. Former Claremont and Canada second row, Jamie Cudmore joins us. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm good, Tim. How about you guys? We're well, thank you. Um, so just set the scene. Where are you at the moment? What are you up to? Because um, you're involved in the National Academy back in Canada, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. So um, in moving back to Canada last year, I, I took the role of uh, the um, head coach of our National Development Academy. So I'm, uh, I'm here in Victoria um, on the west coast of Canada where uh, we're based. We've got our, our field across the street. I'm in the, our high performance center with, you know, gym, doctor, physio, anything you would expect in a, in a professional rugby environment. Um, and then uh, I'm also the forwards coach for the national team with, uh, with Kingsley Jones. So uh, it's, uh, it's a great new role and happy to be home and uh, yeah, happy to chat with you guys. And just give us an insight into what rugby's like in Canada at the moment. Because obviously it's a tough time for everyone uh, with the pandemic, but we've, we've seen the headlines about USA rugby and their financial situation. So what are things like off the field in Canada and also on the pitch? Are things kind of, are they improving? Yeah, things are improving quite well. Um, you know, we're quite lucky to be in a place here on Vancouver Island where we're in a bit of a, a, bit of a bubble. Um, you know, we, we don't have too much in the way of cases here on the island. Um, so, you know, with, uh, with the guys in the environment, with the monitoring that they're doing every day, um, you know, we, we're, we're, we're business as usual. Um, but in terms of, you know, r- rugby kind of across the country, obviously we'll be going into winter pretty soon. So things would be getting pretty, uh, pretty cold east to here. Um, but um, there's no real rugby, rugby to, be, to be said. You know, there's, been a, there's clubs playing touch rugby in smaller groups, but obviously you have to be within a cohort of 50. So that, you know, that makes things very difficult when you want to get two teams plus staff plus fans uh, together and get out. Um, but we're, we're, available, we're al- allowed to do that because we're a high performance um, rugby. So we have cohorts, different cohorts of 50 that we, uh, we work through each week and we're back to, uh, you know, normal training uh, as, as you'd expect in a, in a high performance environment such as ours. Cool. I want to go right back to the start, Jamie, um, and ask you about how you got into rugby. You've been quite vocal saying right back in the day at the start in Canada, you got into quite a bit of trouble off the field and rugby was the one thing that set you straight. So going back to the start of your career, mate, how did you get involved in rugby and how did it help you? Yeah, so um, no, it's true, Johnny. Um, I, I came to rugby quite late. Um, I started about you know fifteen, sixteen, just playing, uh, playing in my local club team in Squamish, uh, where I grew up. And uh, back in those days, it was uh, you know it was a mill town, logging town, um, not really much going on. Um, you had the local hockey team, um, where you know, most kids in Canada would go play hockey. But uh, my mom said it was too violent, so there's no way you're playing hockey. So uh, anyway, um, uh, a boss of mine at that time, and my father played rugby. My father emigrated from England back in the uh, in the mid seventies, and um, so he always we always knew about rugby, but there was no never an opportunity to play. Um, and a boss of mine who I was working for uh, Logan at the time, he was the president of the local club, the Squamish Axemen, and uh, he said, you know, I hear you uh, you and your boys are getting in a bit of bit of shit on the weekend. Well, why don't you? Uh, Come put all that energy in uh, into the rugby uh, into the rugby field and and, and with the team, and uh, and that's kind of where it all started. That's a hell of a nickname as well, the Squamish Axemen. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, back in the day, Squamish was, it was a forestry town. Um, you know, now everybody wants to live there because it's right next to Whistler. It's close to Vancouver. It's a great spot for outdoors, you know, mountain biking, kite surfing, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, it's, it's kind of self-proclaimed the outdoor capital of Canada. So, um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful part of the world. But, um, you know, back in the days, it was, uh, it was almost a bad word. I love it how you say, but you you say back in the days, back in the days. Let's set the scene. He looks ripped as can be right now, but he is seventy five years old. This guy, <laughs> uh, and no, but joke jokes aside, let, let's face it, Jamie. You, you always been an athlete. You always had an inia to to get out there, move a lot. Um, it's the, the reason why I'm really happy that we're here is that we basically I I know you okay, but people can get a certain image. But there's also what what is there more to the character? What is there more to the to to the fella that you see hitting dudes, whatever on the on the field? And there's two aspects to that. There's oh, there's number one. He was always an athlete. So whether it was going to be in hockey, in boxing, in wrestling, in whatever rowing, whatever you name it, you were gonna find a place where you're gonna be able to 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 perform at elite level. That was for me. That that was a given. And then obviously you found rugby. That's that's freaking amazing. But you have to admit that's it's always been sort of enia, not only the athletic side, but sort of the competitive nature. Yeah, that's exactly right, Ben. You know, like I've always wanted to compete at the highest level in everything that I've done, uh, and I've always wanted to be you know very successful and help my teammates. Um, and, and really dominate because, you know, that's what I grew up with, you know, in hockey, in wrestling, in boxing is, you know, over, overcoming your adversary. And that's huge in rugby because, you know, when you can impose yourself and you can dominate, um, that means you're going forward majority of the time. And, and in rugby, that's, that's the, kind of the, the basis of the game. And obviously, we mainly want to talk about your, your time in France, Jamie. But when you moved away from Canada, you, you went to play for, was it Landovery in, in Wales, first of all? Yeah, I originally uh, moved down to New Zealand, played club rugby for East Coast Bays down in the, the North Harbour of Auckland. I had a great time there. Um, I was asked to come back and uh, join up uh, the academy system here, which is, funnily enough, the, the program I now run. Um, and from that, I had an opportunity to get a Canadian cap. And then um, a few of my teammates uh, in, in that, that group were playing professionally in, England, in Wales. Um, and they said, listen, uh, would, you, uh, would you like to give it a go over here? They're, they're looking for big, strong forwards. Um, and I said, yeah, why not? Let's, let's give it a go. And, uh, you know, because when I started in Squamish back in the day, I didn't even know rugby was professional. So I never really had these aspirations of going off to Europe and playing and getting paid to play rugby. I didn't even know that existed. Um, so that was kind of the, the opening of my eyes saying, oh, you can go to Europe and they'll pay you money and, you know, let's sort everything out. And all you got to do is train. I said, geez, man, this is, this is outstanding. Let's give it a go. So, yeah, I showed up uh, in uh, Fanathli in 2002. And I remember walking in the change room, first day of training. And I sat down and you're looking around the room. And I'm like, I'm some skid from Squamish out, out in the West Coast. And I got Scott Quinnell, Stephen Jones, Lee Davies, you know, uh, Chris Wyatt, you know, Mark Jones, all these like names of world rugby and half the Welsh team and the Irish team, the East Dubu brothers are there. And, and I just kind of looked around and well, I thought, you know, well, I better keep my mouth shut and get to work. So, um, you know, that's kind of how it all started. That's, but that's, again, that's when I said to learn about the guy more than the, the, just the player that you were on the field. That's your natural curiosity that pushed you to do that. You've always been sort of curious of traveling, of other people, of other, um, uh, other careers, of different ways of doing things. So you, I saw Jamie basically eat half a cow on his own, 
but then he would be the guy he would be the guy then thinking about nutrition about going whatever how, how can, what can i do found in plants in roots and seeds and whatever it is that we drink that we whatever just to make myself feel better that's that's to give you sort of the the full shebang of what this guy did for 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 a while which is just you know stretch yourself out go as far as you can and do your best and that curiosity mate that curiosity then obviously led you over to Grenoble. That would be after the, the first World Cup. Was after you after your first World Cup? Yeah, that was after my first World Cup in 03. And when you when you got to Grenoble, like obviously things have changed massively. Pro rugby has evolved hugely. But for you as a young Canadian guy after World Cup rocking up in Grenoble, I imagine there wasn't much in the way of infrastructure, uh, you know, somebody showing you around the town or, you know, holding your hand. So as a young guy rocking up in Canada, 2003 in Grenoble, what was that like? Um, well, that was uh, definitely eye-opening. Um, you know, as, as, as I'm sure you guys know, Canada is a bilingual country, but, um, you know, it's extremely large. You know, it's about 6,000 kilometers wide. So unfortunately, out west, we don't speak very much French. So, you know, I went to, I went to school uh, like, like most kids and, you know, grade six, you start uh, French immersion where you really, they really try to ramp up the French. Um, and I lasted about three days. I'm thinking, oh, I'm never going to have French through this stuff. And sure enough, you know, about seven, eight years later, there I am showing up in Grenoble. Well, actually, I, I, I went to Lyon in the airport in Lyon um, and I showed up. There's this taxi driver with my name on a, on a, on a, little board and he said all right off we go uh, down to Grenoble but obviously all in French and I had no idea what he was saying and he talked and talked and talked and talked <laughs> so anyway this guy uh, ripped me down to Grenoble I got dropped off at this apartment hotel about five kilometers outside of town um, with a with a keypad to get in and then I went and sat down and and that was it and then he would come every morning and take me to training but I had no idea where I was. I didn't even know how to phone home. Like I didn't know there was country codes on the telephone in the hotel room. Like there's obviously minimal internet at that time. So it was like you had to go to the internet cafe in town. Um, so, you know, first of all, I didn't really know where I was. I knew I was somewhere in the kind of Eastern part of France. Um, and then, you know, once I got in, turned in, into the training, you pick up the rugby stuff and the language for the rugby stuff quite quickly. But then the the day to day stuff, like just getting things done, it's obviously it's completely different. It's um, you know it's a, it's a different country, um, and it takes a little bit of time to get uh, to get used to. But I'm I'm definitely glad that I, uh, you know, I, I toughed it out and uh, and and enjoyed as much time as I did in France. You spent a couple of years at Grenoble before you moved to Clermont. So you, you explained there how how difficult I guess it was at first. So at what stage did you kind of know that you wanted to stay in France? Or was there were there plenty of times where you thought about heading back to Canada or going back to to the UK and Wales? Um, it was probably the the biggest um, kind of watershed moment was that second year, uh, my first year arriving uh, in Grenoble. The, there was a lot of difficulties with the team. Um, there was kind of two divisions. It was basically the guys that spoke French and the guys that didn't. Um, I tried to kind of be in between because I didn't really, you know, like everybody in both groups. I just tried to kind of, you know, very Canadian, you know, say sorry a lot and be diplomatic. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was, that was a difficult year because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out myself and the team was trying to figure out a lot of different stuff. And I think there was a few dodgy things being done by the president in terms of payments and what have you. And that created a pretty difficult situation. Um, so moving into the second year, it got even more difficult when the club um, hired Dean Richards as the head coach, um, who I got a lot of time for Dean and, and I really enjoyed his, um, you know, his, you know, working with him. 
Um, but we still had those divisions in the team. And then to add an English coach with, who spoke a little bit of French, but you know, not very eloquent, and really couldn't uh, you know, bridge the gap between the two groups. It, it created you know, just a bigger chasm between everybody. Um, so it was very, very difficult for myself, you know, trying to be a part of these two groups, try to keep the things going in the field. Um, he then nominated me captain, uh, which made things even more difficult because I didn't speak French very well at that time. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was pretty tough. So towards the end of that year when um, Claremont actually came calling, I was also speaking with Lester and uh, Richard Cockrell. Um, and I was really in between, you know, going to going going to england or or staying in france um and you know it was funny uh uh cockers kind of helped me make the decision um because i i was open with him i said listen cockers i'm i'm either going to claremont or i'm coming to you guys and uh he said he said you know what i just spent a couple years in claremont it was one of the best few years i ever had in my life they got great infrastructure it's well set up you'll really enjoy yourself um you know i'd love you to come come here but you know you know you make the call. And that's kind of what kicked it for me in the fact that I hadn't really given France a chance. I hadn't mastered the language. Well, I probably still haven't, but you know, at least I can carry a conversation with Benjamin. Um, it's, uh, it, was, it was kind of that point where I, I thought, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a go. I'm gonna go to Clermont and um, you know, who, we'll see what happens. And um, then next thing you know, 11 years later, I was still in Clermont and uh, you know, we, we, we we became French. My kids were born there. We built houses there, businesses there. Had a great time on the rugby field. Great, met some great friends and, and coaches, and uh, and thoroughly enjoyed myself. Thank you, Cockers. Yeah. Did you have a good um, Did you have a good story about Vern basically picking up the phone and giving you a shout to some kids? I don't know if I've ever told you that one, but when I went to Clermont to, to visit it, he was coming back from a hunting trip with Guinoves, and I'm telling you, like it's it's nothing short of a, of a movie. I was on that one. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes. Mate, cool. it was, it, it's almost if he still had blood in his hands when I met him at the petrol station. And I'm there, like, put a shooting petrol. He's like, meet me at that petrol station at that time, whatever. And I'm there shooting my petrol. And I hear somebody behind me go, I'm looking for a decent playing hooker. <laughs> Turn around. He's right ah. there. And he's like, almost if you're, at, you know, having a piss or something. <laughs> I got you. And he sort of tested me from day one, you know, with those sort of brown, brown, greenish, whatever things, camouflage that you would wear to go. I mean, honestly, it was, it was, it was unreal. But to, to set the scene, Vern is a tough mother, but a big manager. And he loved Jamie's attitude that was just, let's, let's get shit done. So he, he would use him on the field to what he's good at, which was literally just getting shit done. And so they had a funny relationship, the two of them, because I, well, I, I don't know. If you guys would chat for a long, long time off the field, I don't know. I wasn't there. But day-to-day -day stuff was a bit like, Jamie, mm. you know, it was a bit like, they would almost growl at each other. You know, it's just yeah. like, and <laughs> blink and roar. Yeah, well done. Mm, that was good. Very, mm, very, yeah. very, <laughs> very animalistic. Yeah, no, Vern and, I, Vern and I had a great great relationship, you know, over the years. Obviously, when you, when you work for with somebody like that for, for eight years, you create quite a, quite a lot of affinity. Um, you know, I, I still keep in contact with him a lot here, uh, you know, through, throughout my coaching career, just, you know, bouncing ideas off him and, and all the rest of it. But um, I think probably one of the better, uh, the better stories from Vern, you know, well, there's a couple, but uh, one for me was, um, you know, towards uh, the end of his tenure there in, in Claremont, <laughs> we were, um, we were actually building a house um, and, you know, 
like Benji said, I like to get my hands dirty and get to get things done. Um, so I was actually doing a lot of the work on the house. Um, and Vern, I guess, had noticed that, you know, I was coming into work, um, you know, coming into training, you know, dirty clothes and maybe a little bit tired. And he, uh, he kind of pulled me in the office one day. He goes, Danny, I know you're building this house, but how much are you actually doing? I said, oh, no, Vern, it's okay. I'm not doing too much. I'm not doing too much. I'm letting the trades do their work and all the rest. Of it. I just got a couple of meetings in the morning and then I leave and come to training and they, 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 they do everything. He said, huh, okay. And then one evening I was, it was like a, a Friday night or a Thursday afternoon after training. And uh, um, I, I remember being in this hole. I was doing the drain tile around my house, all the uh, perimeter drainage for the house. And I'm in a hole covered in mud, like, and I'm cutting PVC pipe and I'm putting stuff together and I'm swearing because it's not quite lining up. And, and then I hear this truck come up the, the, the drive in front of the house. And I thought it was my neighbor who was coming to drop some stuff off for me. So I didn't really pay much attention. And then sure enough, I get that. Jamie, <laughs> fuck you doing? Told you not to work in your house. So I said, I looked up and I said, oh. Sorry, Vern. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll clean up and go to bed. <laughs> Stop. He's the kind of dude, though. I thought he might have joined in. Like, he's he's hardcore. Any oh, chance yeah. you'd link up in a, in a coaching capacity? Have you had any chat with him? I know he's with Fiji now, and he's, he's doing a bit with the, the Babas just now. But would you be interested in hooking up with him further down the line, doing some coaching with him? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, you know, I think um, we've got a, we've got a rap report uh, between, between the two of us and definitely with the other guys that he's worked with. You know, we've, we've all kind of either worked together or played together. Um, and you know, as you know, when you, when you put a coaching staff together, you need to have that, that confidence in, in the people that you work with. Um, and I definitely be open for, uh, for that, but you know, I'm, I've got a, I've got a great gig here and I'm, I'm learning as a coach and I'm learning as, you know, a manager, uh, more so with, uh, with our, within our environment here, but, um, you know, I, I never, definitely never say no to something like that in the future. And just give us an insight into the job he did at Claremont, because when you moved there, Jamie, they'd finished mid-table a couple of years, I think, and you know they, they were having some pretty tough times. And then Vern arrived, and very quickly they were a force, weren't they? So just give us an insight into the job he did. Yeah, so um, I, uh, I I arrived to to Claremont the year before Vern arrived, and um, you're exactly right. We had we had pretty much the same team uh, to the to the next year when Vern arrived. But there was no real kind of um, there was no real global work ethic. There was no attention to detail. Um, everything was kind of done kind of half-assed. Not all the time, but for for in a global sense, um, he got there and he he basically just cleaned house. He got rid of the guys that weren't working hard or didn't want to work hard. Um, he he changed um, you know the way we trained, the way we we worked. Um, just basically kind of brought it back to the old school, but while also being very, very new in, in, in the way that we attacked the game, the way that uh, nutrition was set up and our training was set up, basically professionalized everything and, and um, you know, brought guys to task that uh, were maybe floating a little bit. Um, so for, for me, it was, uh, it was outstanding. It was, you know, I, I like to train and then, you know, seeing a coach that's in there and making the boys work hard and, and really, more importantly, getting success through that hard work was uh, was outstanding. And obviously, you were hugely successful under him at, at Claremont. Obviously, being part of that first Claremont t- team to win the French title must have been massive. I was going to ask what your favourite memories of your time at Claremont were. I'm guessing that's one of them. But yeah, talk us through a couple of them. 
Oh, definitely. The, the winning, uh, winning in, um, in 2010 was outstanding. Um, that's definitely one of my highlights uh, of my career. Um, you know, I think more so in the fact that we, we had been there three years previously um, and to lose every time was, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was very, very difficult and all from, for different reasons. Um, but um, to finally have won that and, um, you know, to see how much, you know, he, how much work he had put in and, and really everybody in the club, um, you know, on the 100th year anniversary as well uh, was uh, a huge, huge uh, achievement for the club and, and for all the guys that were a part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the stories from uh, the game and the after and the week after and all the rest of it, there's, there's probably a thousand. But, um, you know, I can, I can tell you it was, uh, it was a well-lubricated week. <laughs> <laughs> See, Jamie, I, I knew you were gonna, obviously going to bounce on 2000. You have to understand it was the first title in the history of Clermont. Clermont absolutely lives and breathes um, uh, rugby. It's, it's, it's something, it's a myth. It's in their blood. It's unbelievable. I mean, Saracens had about 450 people waiting for them when they won the Champions Cup for the third time. Uh, Clermont had 100,000 people out of 160,000 population of just a town on one square. I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing, ridiculous what they did. One memory that for me is extremely dear, and I'm sure it will be, it'll be in, in your highlights, Jamie, as well, is when we won back-to-back Munster, but especially Munster in Munster. And, and those two games we played together, and it was just legendary games. I remember for a fact that you absolutely bullied Polo Connell, like for two times 80 <laughs> minutes. It was ridiculous. Like, it was just one of those games, you know, obviously Jamie didn't do it on, on his own, but it was just one of those games where everybody was on a high. We won over there first time in history, then back to back, whatever. And then I don't know if you remember, but after that game, so at that time, you were still waiting to extend your contract for some whatever fucking reason. The president, may he rest in peace, uh, Eric uh, de Cromier, was just waiting because he wasn't sure and stuff. And after that second game, we had a good, a good night, basically, a few, a few wines, whatever. And I don't even remember, but we were grabbing the president. Back, look at the old man. Look at the old man. He's ready. He's ready. And that night, he sort of shook your hand. You got your contract, you know. So I was like, Ray! we finally got him. You know, we cracked him. We were happy. But that, that for me, is the absolute highlight of what I saw you, like dominating Polo Connell, that season where we were smoking everyone and we were really good. And then if you fast forward 18 months, I feel in my, in my heart, but that's just me, eh? that you sort of left by the little door because, because of things that we'll spoke, speak about later that were important to you to address and to speak out about and to speak up about and all that. Deep down in your, so to the fans, Jamie Kermel will always be an ISM legend for sure. For the blood and the sweat that he's put on the field, it's not even a question. But I feel that Jamie Cudmore should have the keys to the club and basically be able to walk in, walk out whenever he freaking desires. Because when you've put so much on the field for that jersey, then that's how it should be. And I just feel that then after those years, you sort of, you kept contact with some boys. You kept, you were never afraid of coming up. But you have to admit, you took a few steps back, right? You, you just want to, you wanted to sort of clear your head. And, and do you not regret that of not being able just to be, Full on the man, man. You fucking earned it. You did everything on the pitch for it. Um, no, I don't have any regrets, uh, Ben. You know how things finished in Claremont. That's that's how they finished. And you know, I I was moving into the second uh, side of my career, which is something I've always done since I started playing rugby, which is coaching. Something I really enjoy doing, and uh, you know, I'm in a great environment here for that. Um, the fact that you know it finished in Claremont like it finished, well. You know, I know, I know why I'm, 
I played myself. I played with my heart on my sleeve, and I, and I'll always be, you know, honest and open in, in everything that I do. And and yeah, maybe things could have gone differently at the end, but um, you know, I I had a, a final game with my family and friends there, and um, you know, that was a, that was a great finish. Um, and you know, sure, it's difficult to go back to Thurmont now because there's some people that don't understand the, you know, what 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 I'm I'm trying to do in terms of. Uh, you know the this lawsuit with the club but um you know it's it's not it's not something for for me it's it's for it's for kids uh you know that are uh that are dealing with concussion issues uh throughout france and and the world and clubs aren't uh aren't uh, standing up for uh, for their players i mean you've been super vocal on this um and has for me you will always be a clermont legend one of the absolute people that have blazed the trail for foreigners in France, absolutely loved watching you, didn't enjoy playing against you, it's a compliment, <laughs> but you absolutely leave with your integrity because you could sell your soul and go out and, and take the heroes and you know sail into the sunset, but you stood up for something that you absolutely believe in. You've been super vocal, which I think has been fantastic. So Benji, I completely agree with the big fella. I mean, you could keep quiet and, and keep the adoration, but the fact, the topic that he's highlighted and what he's speaking up about is so important in today's rugby. Like, look what's happened to NFL, the bombshell they've had and the payout and the sort of lack of care that has been had. Like, do you think, Jamie, in that sense, there's a sort of ticking time bomb for rugby that it hasn't been addressed properly, the care hasn't been um, the level it's needed to be? Like, I myself have been through the HIO pro HIA protocols as you had been. I had failed and be put back on pitch as you had and um, because there's so much pressure on clubs in France to get people on the pitch and get results with relegation with promotion it's so important but do you feel more needs to be done obviously and do you feel that rugby is sitting on a ticking dime bomb when it comes to payouts when it comes to lawyers and all these things that we haven't seen yet um well I definitely think we're we're sitting on a time bomb it's um it's just a question as to when they're going to address it um you know there's I've got countless guys who I've been in contact with. We were dealing with, uh, you know, early onset, onset Alzheimer's, um, you know, CTE uh, problems. Um, and, uh, and it's actually in the, a lot of the research I've seen lately, it's, um, it's now uh, a possibility to uh, understand if people have CTE when they're, uh, when they're still alive without, um, without cutting their brains open using uh, what's a CTI uh, um, MRI scan. So, you know, there's, Definitely a bomb going to go off. When that happens, I, don't, I do not know. Um, the biggest thing for me, and, and the reason we set up our foundation uh, in, uh, after my issues in 2015, was the, the, the real issue around you know, a lot of um, rugby in Europe is education. It's just people understanding what the problem is um, and you know, how, to, how to address it at the time, how to address it afterwards. And uh, and how to minimize the risks uh, beforehand, you know, because at the professional level, we're working on tackle technique, neck strengthening exercises. Everybody wears a mouth guard all the time, but you know, you got those boys uh, playing on a Sunday from any any age, whether it be under eights to you know seniors, um, and a lot of those people are not educated around the dangers of uh, of concussion, what to do when it happens, or before or after. Um, so that was the biggest thing for us, and we pushed a lot in, on the education side of things. Um, and you know, now I think you know, professional rugby needs to really follow the rules because we've gone outside the rules. It always used to be, you know, ten sorry twenty years ago it used to be a three week stand down after a concussion. 
And um, World Rugby has ignored a lot of the, uh, the data and the, the studies that have come out. And they said, oh, yeah, okay, we're going to allow the professional entities to turn that 13, that 15 day stand down into a six day turnaround, which is absolutely really ridiculous. Mayhem. You, know, you, you talk about player welfare um, and sure, you know, the GPS and the load monitoring and all that stuff is, uh, is, is much, much better. And the SFT coaches, the majority of them understand how to, you know, build guys up so that they're at their peak, uh, in the, in a training load. Um, but, um, you know, are clubs looking at how much they, uh, they do, uh, contact in a week? Are they looking at the impacts that their players are getting? Uh, because these little micro impacts, just like in football, uh, they build up, they build up, they build up. And so sure, we're looking at HIAs in games, which as you, as you said, a lot of times they're not being, um, they're not being adhered to, to the letter of the law. Um, and then you've got all these HIAs, which don't even happen in the week at training when guys are hoeing into each other and doing mall sessions and scrum sessions and defense sessions, which in no way, shape or form do I want to take out of the game. But if the education piece is pushed on onto everybody, they'll be able to make better decisions when those, uh, those injuries do happen. Unfortunately, out of all of this, there was a statement by the club that said, without any what is it without any consequences they can't be like they cannot be liability and i thought that was that was cold and that was that was that was a that was a knife in my heart when i heard that because that means if you can not clearly show that you're sick ill wounded then they, why the fuck is it our fault clearly yeah. they were you, jamie was addressing a problem of player welfare of humans' lives, being healthy, like taking rugby for what it is, a sport and, 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 and a laugh. And they were taking it in terms of insurance, uh, like almost law cases. You know, we don't want to be liable. We don't want to pay. So the reason why I said, do you not regret this? I think you would have been an extraordinary um, light in, in, in a dark sky for younger players, especially I think the the the, 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 the presidents need to understand this and the league needs to understand this, but I'm, I've almost given up on them. I think they're heartless, soulless, and, and the system is just, is just not built for this. But again, I would love to see a bit more of, of, of brotherhood and brother love within squads, within teams, where how many times did you do it? How many times did I do it? Remember we played Saracens together and I pulled Dato out of that game because he was just about to fall after a scrum and he's sort of looking at me. He's Dato's Yirakashvili, sorry, tight head prop. And he's sort of looking at me and like eyes are all wobbling because the tackle be, be, before, you know, the classic, two guys try to tackle the same guy and I hit him here, but he hits me differently. If I don't pull him out, nobody's seen it. But that's the type of, and Jamie, I saw him do it a few times. He's always grabbing glasses. If you don't look, just, just sit down five minutes, you know, have a proper assessment, whatever, hear it out. If we don't promote that, we're doomed. I think the players have got the solution in their hands. They need to understand that they need to have the balls to stand up and at some point say, I can't play. You want to put me back on the field? Sue me. I cannot play. I'm telling you that I cannot play. And until we promote that sort of, that sort of attitude or backed obviously by mates, it's, it's, it's a tough one to, to, to swallow. Huh? Well, that's definitely where the whole education piece comes in. Uh, ben, you know, if everybody understands the dangers and understands that it's an injury, there's no big concussion, small concussion. It's a head injury. And when, you have, when you're injured, you can't play rugby. It's like when you've blown your knee out or your ankle or your neck, you're injured. And everybody understands that. The difficulty with head injuries is because you can't see it, nobody really knows 
am I injured? Am I not? You know, and it's really that education piece that if guys just, okay, I don't feel right. Maybe I'll take a bit of time off or, you know, I go talk with the doc, maybe do uh, a bit of, um, you know, recovery as opposed to doing another training session or getting right back out there, uh, you know, five minutes later. And, uh, you know, that's really what it comes down to. And before we talk a, a bit more about what other solutions might be, can you just give those listeners that listen to this who have never had a concussion or certainly not a series of concussions, just give them an insight of what it feels like, certainly when it happens one after another after another, and then how it affects you in your everyday life and, and for how long as well? Um, well, I can only speak on, on my situations uh, because, you know, everybody's brain's different. Everybody suffers different symptoms. Um, for me, um, my biggest episode was in 2015 in the semifinal of the, the Champions Cup and then two weeks later in the final where, um, you know, in, in speaking with the neurologists here, I've been doing a lot of testing and, and work over the last six months. They seem to understood that uh, my collision in that game in the semifinal in 2015 uh, was like a kind of a super event. So I clashed heads at the same time, head to head, going into a ruck at about a thousand miles an hour with Billy Lunapola. So big, strong boy, myself flying at the same time. It's like two uh, kind of rams butting heads. Um, and I was, um, I was, I was out in, out, out, out in the space. I could see little lights. I could, I could hear noise, but it, it was quite kind of, um, you know, at the, at the end of the hallway. Um, and I really didn't know where the hell I was. Um, luckily I was cut, uh, and I was taken off for blood. Otherwise I probably would have gotten up and kept going. Um, was taken off the field and, um, you know, had a, had a myriad of symptoms at that time, but I uh, was still, you know, in the adrenaline of the game. Um, and then obviously went back on, finished the game. And that started, um, you know, a, a couple of days of just really being really tired. I wasn't excited that we had won. I mean, we're in a European Cup final in, in two weeks. And I was just, all I want to do is get back on the bus um, and just get home. Um, I all the boys are having a few beers on the bus. It's only about an hour drive back to Claremont from there. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to have a beer. Just didn't feel, you feel really low. I struggled with light. I struggled with sound, um, you know, headaches, feeling very lethargic um, and, you know, just basically concussed. Um, so that for me was, um, you know, what I heard, what I kind of felt and the symptoms that I went through. Um, and uh, it was, um, you know, end up playing two weeks later. And then unfortunately that started um, really uh, about, you know, 10 days where I didn't sleep. Um, I, was a, I was a bit of a monster at home, couldn't have the kids near me, couldn't kind of really leave the house. Um, then slowly got in, gradually returned to training and tr tried to return to play, but I was too far gone. I, I just kind of not even tackle somebody, bump into somebody at training and I have like, bees buzzing in my head and uh feel feel nauseous um that was before the semi-final of top 14 after right that's right so it's always that that's the, that's the main problem is that you play a semi-final of, of of champions cup you win it like he said uh saint-etienne against saracens and stuff and then this guy is trying is like a, a, you know a race to be able to be fit against the final but imagine every single guy is looking at him what do you mean well, well you can't play what do you, what do you mean you can't play what do you mean you don't feel good 
we need Jamie. What, what the hell are you talking about? We're going to play <laughs> too long in the final. Huh? And then you get to there. And then after the final, it was the second one. And then, yeah, take three weeks off, whatever. But then before the semifinal, what do you mean you can't play? Come on, Jamie, please play, please play, please play. It's that pressure that builds up, which is the whole issue in, the, in this matter, that Jamie didn't feel good, but you don't want to let down the team. You don't want to let down the coach. You don't want to let down the fans. And then where's the, how do you put the level of, I think of myself, I don't let down anyone. How the hell do you put that in two consecutive finals? Imagine that. That's, that's the episode of 2015 that he went through. Yeah. No, it's, it's tough there, you know, because I want to play. Everybody else wants you to play. Um, and exactly like you said, Benji, you want to, uh, you want to, you want to do your, your part for the team. Um, but, um, you know, if, in that time, that's when I think the meds, the doctors need to uh, need to step up a bit more and just say, "Listen, you know, you're, you, the the signs are not clear for you to continue to play." And I know it's a very difficult call, but um, you know, that's that's again where it comes down to the, the, the whole education piece. And obviously, your experience was in France, David. This is a, a global problem within well, not just rugby, other sports as well, but within rugby. But from the research that you've obviously done a lot into this, does it vary from place to place in terms of how you get treated, whether it's by the doctors the the clubs whether they're independent which they are now a lot of the time and what needs to be done from in that respect to to make things better um well it's it's night and day in terms of you know from what what we had in france to uh to where i'm here in canada um and and again you know i'm, I'm probably harping on to it a bit much but it's it's comes down to that education piece and the the data that's out there for you know the physios and the therapists and the doctors that are involved with with our program, um, you know when we see when you if you are able to see somebody um, you know fall into a taxis after a bad uh, um, tackle or or you know that type of situation, there's no real thought of you know can he go through an HIA? It's just all right, warm up the next guy. He's he's gone, not gone, but he's he's he's, he's not an option. Um, whereas, you know, in France, there's still that old adage of, you know, you pull out the magic sponge and, you know, oh, he's a tough guy, you can keep going. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, in those two experiences, you know, the French side hasn't really caught up to the data. Uh, whereas I think here, um, we've, we've gotten a bit, bit further ahead. And I think, you know, maybe in, uh, in England, they're, uh, they're, they're a, a slight bit ahead as well, but, um, there's still that that old school thought, you know, that traditional thought, which, you know, tradition is very, very dangerous in sport. Some of it's very, very good, but other things are, uh, are, you know, counterproductive and dangerous. So it's, uh, it's important. And is that something that you think that world rugby need to intervene and standardize it across the world so that, so that you don't get those differences depending on where, where you play? Well, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of, the, a lot of their work uh, around the concussion protocols and, and, uh, and, and all the rest of it, and, that, and that's great. But then they go and shoot themselves in the foot by saying that they can have these HIAs in, uh, in professional rugby. Because the crazy thing about that is who watches professional rugby the majority of the time? Well, it's, all, it's all the kids, you know, and kids want to do what the pros do. You know, it's like kids playing hockey here on the, on the street. They want to do what the guys in the NHL do. But now we start to see spotters in the NHL, and when guys have concussions, they're out injured. And kids understand that. They're like, oh, no, we, it's too bad Sidney Crosby's out. He's my favorite player, but he's out with concussion injury. So, you know, that's just normal. Whereas we've kind of, from where, where I came in France, it was more kind of 
oh, concussion, you know, you can deal with it. You know, it's not that bad. And looking at me, there's not, there's not even an injury. And, and it's kind of, you know, it's still kind of almost a mystical problem uh, when actually, in actual fact, it's, uh, it's very, very dangerous. And just to finish on the, on the concussion topic, if, if World Rugby, if Bill Beaumont signs you up as the next, you know, the, the guy to lead this, what, what's the first thing that you do to kind of put things right? Because you've spoken a lot about education, which is clearly the key and, and standardizing it across the globe. But you know, if there's one thing now and they're listening, what, what would you say to them? What's the first thing they should do? Uh, the first thing you should do, I, I think you got to get rid of that, um, that, uh, that six-day turnaround for professional rugby. Um, because we talk about player welfare and you're not, you're not help, you're not, you don't know anything in six days when you, when you have a major, a major head injury. So you get rid of that and, uh, bring it back to say, probably, probably back to the old, the old three week, uh, thing, you know, professional clubs have 35, 40 players on their roster. Um, and that'll, uh, that there's, there's plenty of, there's plenty of guys to get out on the field. Um, and then after that, as you said, it's the education piece. Um, you know, there's a lot of different rules you could look at and, and you know, how it's refereed and, and, and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, if it comes from the bottom up through the education piece and then from the top down by taking better care of the professional players now, I think those are two things that are extremely easy to implement and um, would go a long way to, uh, you know, helping both sides of the game. And go back to, to happier times now. Benji brought it up that he was responsible for you, you getting some sort of massive new contract at Claremont already. So double, that was clearly what doubled it. <laughs> that was clearly one of your highlights. But um, come on, he, he's here. Give us some stories on Benji. Tell us what was your first impression of Benji when he when he arrived in Claremont? And um, yeah, go on, tell us some stories about him. Oh, Benji. Well, uh, well, when he first arrived in Claremont, uh, you know, it was, it was obviously great to uh, great to have a French international, um, you know, who spoke English. Uh, uh, we could kind of we could um, we could connect right away. Um, you know, it was uh, it was great in that time. You know, we were building a, a kick-ass squad, and uh, to have a guy of his caliber uh, in with us was uh, was outstanding. It was a huge uh, huge boost, um, and uh, he he definitely loved to to drink wine and uh, eat red meat. So he was an uh, even better friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, we had some friends in common and uh, enjoyed some, some great long lunches and long dinners uh, throughout the years. And um, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll uh, always uh, hold some fond memories of, uh, you know, being underground and uh, drinking, drinking wine in, in clandestine <laughs> restaurants uh, in the middle of farmer's fields. So, you know, I can't go much more into that, but uh, there's some... Uh, there's well, you can, you can just say that at that lunch, there was, there was Jamie Comore, Flip Van der Merve, the former South African Springbok clock, and Olivier Merle. And I'm telling you, I will never release that picture. That's, that's my memory. But I've got a picture of the three of them together. And Olivier Merle can eat Jamie for breakfast. He is fucking ginormous. Yeah. You think about, oh, you know, the physique has changed. And look at the rugby players now. They're so massive. Fuck that. Uh, Olivier Merle was a freak of a man. Olivier Roumat, do you know if you remember him? The, the big second row is a beast of a dude. Gérard Cholet. Have you seen Gérard Cholet now? Yeah. Yeah, he is ginormous. <laughs> there are some huge fellas. Aurélien Rougerie should have played second row, basically. He's never, he's never back. He's just absolutely huge. Yannick Josion, remember him, the center for Toulouse? He's built like Jamie. So there was always being big fellas. It's just the, the only problem with new rugby now is that there's too many games in the season that's the only issue let's just slow down the pace a little bit go back to some quality rugby i think the second division i don't know what you think jamie because you actually played for your at the end of your career is it five week one week off is that r roughly what it is i think that's a very good rhythm four or five yeah 
I think that's a really good rhythm. I don't know what you think about that, but I think for the body, I can play four, but then definitely have a week off. Well, that's the only way I managed to play till I was 38. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, 30, 38 was 25 years ago. Remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, going back a step again, another one of Benji's stories, he was talking about you dominating Paul O'Connell. We, we can't have you on and, and not talk more about it. If you tap your name into YouTube, it's the first thing that's always going to come up forever. So we're going to ask you. Yeah, um, yeah. Like obviously the way you played, you were physical, abrasive, you led from the front. You were all about getting your team on the front foot. But when you played against a guy like Paulie, was the kind of thing you really enjoyed that confrontation, the one-on-one? -on -one. It was basically you get your team on the front foot if you dominate Paulie, and that's what you managed to do for those two games, which ended up in a title. So in that type of game, and then the punch-up that followed, how much of that was premeditated? You're obviously going to follow him by the pitch and try and dominate him physically, but then once you're in that kind of situation, it was gloves down and we're going. But how much of it was, there's a good chance this is going to happen and I'm ready to go. Um, well, we're, we're talking about two different instances where you're, you're talking about the, the 2015 uh, home and away with Munster um, yeah. and then the, uh, our, little, our little scuffle in, uh, yep. in 2008. Um, you know, listen, I got, a, I got a huge amount of respect for Paulie. Uh, we've had some good chats after games and, uh, you know, he's a, he's a world-class player for, he's a formidable, a formidable opponent. A formidable I remember you saying opponent. that in an interview and I looked at him and was like, what the fuck did you just say? A formidable <laughs> opponent. He said, I had the, I had the thesaurus out that day. Yeah. No, like, uh, to be honest, just to be uh, just to be named, uh, you know, alongside a guy like that is 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 huge for me, you know, because he's uh, he's kind of done it all and been a part of the Lions and uh, Ireland for years, and you know, um, with Munster as well, you know, is he's he's a kind of their talisman. So, you know, when I'm uh, when I'm mentioned against a guy like that, it's that's that's really really pleasing. Um, if you go back to 2008, um, you know, I. Learning, uh, learning rugby on the on the West Coast. Uh, one of the first things I learned was that you always protect your number nine. Um, in that in that uh, kind of scuffle in 2008, Pierre Mignoni was our number nine, and he got uh, he got kind of dealt to by uh, I think their hooker and Paulie was around. And anyway, I kind of had to step over and pull Pierre out of the way and and get a, get involved a little bit. And um, I remember seeing the uh, the touch judge put his flag out, and I thought, oh, geez, we're go we're both going to go here. Um, and there's a thing in, uh, in, Can in Canada, in Canadian culture, where uh, you get five for fighting. So five for fighting is five minutes penalty in, that, in, a, in a hockey game because both guys fight. So if both guys fight, you both get five for fighting, and you go off the field, and then you come back. So right at that moment, I figured we're both going to get 10 for fighting. So I was like, all right, might as well just give her. So kind of a bit of a jab and had a bit of a roll around and a bit of a tickle, and then uh, we got up and uh, – we had a bit of a laugh at it, and uh, and I got the the red card, and I thought, holy shit, what happened here? <laughs> this, this this didn't go to plan. So um, so anyway, I always kind of had that in the back of my head um, when we played in uh, in in fifteen about you know I want to I want to show that I can actually play, um, and you know win win through rugby, um, and I think uh, as a as a as a as a a team and you know for myself personally i think we, we managed to do that uh in those in those two games where you know i kind of he, he probably won that one in 08 and then uh and then you know i won the one in, in 15. johnny when i said to understand about the full picture is that where he doesn't say jamie's that you think he just wants to brutalize anybody on the pitch it's not true Polo Connell at that time was the absolute brain of that line out of Munster. Maybe Jamie was thinking, we had Damien Schuli, who was sort of the same brain at the time for playing for us. He was thinking, how can I dominate him? So I remember during that game, 
whenever you know you have sl slow balls every team in the world does the same thing sort of a three man three fours just trucking it up you know just to get a bit of momentum back jamie would push everybody in the in the line just to be able to hit to be in front of him because it was more of a it was more like listen i can't beat him in the line now then i'm gonna kick the shit out of him on the pitch <laughs> and up. only him <laughs> because if number four beats number four then i've done something for my team you think he's just like throwing himself out of nowhere to beat the 15? It's not that. So listen, I'm going to, like, I remember we played Breve that opening season when I hurt my neck. I was just back, that big Konanai bully, that Fijian number eight who was bullying everyone. And before the game, Vern was, it wasn't Vern, sorry. It was John O'Gibbs and, um, John O'Gibbs and Frank Azema who were sort of whining us up about that Konanai bully. You know, he's running over everyone. The first tackle that there is to do on him, you could see everybody was pushing each other. I want him. I want him. Let me be. And Jamie obviously smoked him because he just ran after him after a long kick. So it was that. That's that's the complete player that he was. You think he just wanted to be a mongrel? That's not true. Is reductive. He was. He, he was like, how can I be the most useful for the team? Well, I'm going to take the biggest dude and smoke him. That's what I can do. And that was so he would obviously he didn't do it every single day, but when you did, that was a, that was a big help for the team. Fireworks. We also we had a message from a shy retiring type from Canada, a young fellow called Jeb Sinclair. I'm not sure if you know him, um, yeah, but he Jeb also said about this one this morning. <laughs> yeah, but he said, "Look, ask you. You can't choose him. You can't choose your brother, and you can't choose Paul O'Connell. Who would have been your dream second row partner?" I know, I know. I don't know. Um, uh, there's a few. I was I was very fortunate to play with some some great second rows, you know, and uh, Nathan Hines, Ibo Priva, um, you know, and uh, I, I would have thought it quite funny to to put uh, put myself in with Bakis, you know. Just have a <laughs> yeah. Wow! Wow! That been pretty good. There's no line. Maybe not there. now because I think he's about 180 kilos, but. Um, I think we, I think we moved, we moved some furniture with, uh, with that, uh, with that second part. And just, uh, just talking about now, you're obviously in coaching, you're, you're back in Canada, but you did a bit of coaching in, in Provence as well at the end of your time in France. So moving from how you were as a player to how you are as a coach, uh, who have your main influences been in terms of coaching and what kind of coach do you want to be and, and what are your, your ambitions for the future coaching wise? Um, so, um, you know, I always take a, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, advice from Vern, um, and, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, a big, big influence on, on myself, uh, in those kind of years in Claremont. Um, and then now I've, I've taken, you know, bits and pieces from, from everybody, you know, uh, as, uh, you know, with social media and the, the internet, you know, there's so much out there around, you know, not just rugby coaching, you know, whether it be basketball, whether it be, um, you know, basketball, uh, sorry, um, uh, you know, soccer, whatever it may be, there's, uh, there's so much good stuff out there to, to kind of help develop, you know, my philosophy and, and how I want to be as a coach. Um, so, you know, now with my guys, um, you know, I try to be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very understanding and I, you know, I understand, you know, how, how guys, young guys think and, um, you know, what they're, what they're trying to get out of their, their rugby careers. So I try to help them on that. But uh, and on the other side, there's, there's certain non-negotiables, you know, you know, guys got to be on time. There's, you know, an honesty factor, which is extremely important. Um, and uh, just making sure that guys are working, working to their maximum uh, every time we're, we're together. Um, because, you know, definitely for us in Canada, we need to work harder than everybody else to, uh, to make up, make up the gap of, uh, maybe not starting rugby so early. 
Um, and then in the future, you know, I'd, I'd like to uh, continue on with the Canadian team as long as I can and help, you know, bring us out of the top 20 because, uh, you know, we've had kind of a, a difficult last 10, 15 years where, you know, our national team has been under-resourced in terms of uh, quality players. That's why I'm so excited about being a part of the academy here now so that we can, um, you know, get more young players coming in and, uh, and playing at a good level and, uh, and get Canada, you know, I think, I think we can legitimately aspire to be in the top 15 over kind of probably the next five to six years. Um, there's a lot of work to be done, but, um, you know, I, I definitely think we're, we're, it's possible to do that. Um, if I'm uh, involved uh, in a head coach role with Canada, I, I, I definitely relish that appointment and I'd, uh, I give it all my attention and, um, you know, whether it's going to be uh, with Kingsley here in the, in the next uh, World Cup cycle for 2023 in France, or whether it's, uh, I move on uh, into, uh, into something in professional rugby, maybe in Major League Rugby or back in Europe, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm open for all that. You know, I've been in contact and talks with uh, different groups that want to put an MLR team here in Vancouver. Um, so we're pretty excited about that um, and how uh, how that's structured. Um, but um, you know, obviously, that's a wait and see thing here with North America with with coronavirus. We've got a we've got a more important things uh, that need to be dealt with and uh, and kind of tamp down definitely south of the border here because uh, I tell you down there it's a shit show. Absolutely. Um, and just before we let you go, we're talking about being influenced by Vern. A handshakes and hunting trips a big part of your coaching philosophy oh yeah definitely definitely um out here there's not too much hunting uh on the island it's more fishing so uh we'll get the boys out uh on the salmon boats and uh and loading loading up the uh loading up the fish buckets but um yeah no definitely uh some hunting trips and uh you know a good handshake and a and a, and a stern grunt is uh, is all you need Thanks so much, Jamie. Good luck with everything that you're doing uh, in Canada uh, and everything that the future holds coaching-wise. And we haven't even spoken about your wine either, which I'm very interested in. Benji's got a glass of it there, but... <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. He's got, uh, he's got, he's got more uh, refined taste, I think, Benji. But, um, <laughs> no, we, ended I don't. Up, we, end up, we end up selling all that stuff off and uh, on our move back to Canada, we kind of cut ties with, uh, with, the, with the winemakers. But, um, you know, we're still... Uh, still uh, I still don't mind to have a have a glass on the weekends. Awesome. Absolute legend. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks a lot, yeah, mate. Really enjoyed it. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He's a legend, man. I, I, I thoroughly hope, like... Um no disrespect to other guests that we've had on and stuff, but when it's not a close mate, you know, it's, it's, it's different. I really do hope that people got the gist that 
or that you guys got the gist of the full shebang that, it, that he represents. He's not just a, a beast that just absolutely bullied people for 15 years on the pitch. I mean, ask Johnny, when you rocked up in France, you probably asked, you know, Bakis Bota. Yeah, okay, that was from what, 2012, something like that, 2013 in Toulon. Maybe he arrived in 14. I can't, no, 13 he played. So he probably arrived in 12, okay? But Jamie Cudmore arrived in Grenoble in 2004 or something like that. And he was called the sheriff there. And you did not want to get into <laughs> into him. Like he would, he would, he, he obviously he was a big puncher. Then he had to put that, you know, put his, put his gloves on the side. But he was a hell of a bruising lock. You know, um, what's it called? Brad Thorne. Remember the second yeah. row for the Q, for the ABs? He was that type of dude. So the ABs celebrated Brad Thorne as, be, as the, the biggest lock in their history, almost. Jamie Cunmore, if he didn't have the same passport, would have been the same dude, I'm telling you. Get him to be English, Scottish, French, Welsh, whatever it is in Europe. And he would have had 80 cap and he would have been an absolute legend. And, and I really do hope that people got the sense that there's that fantastic player, but there's also a curious, open-minded, um, outgoing, very, very, not particularly, oh, I don't know, he's obviously smart, but just clever. You know, uh, you know, Clearly. guys are clever, street smart, whatever it is, uh, well, well organized and driven because, yes, he, 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 you look like he's just a brute and stuff. He trained like an animal. He did go out a lot. OK, but he would also recover like an animal. Like he was always full on, always full on in his ways that he would say things, do things, deal with things. I, re I really do hope that people got the full shebang of the depth of his, of his, of his emotions, of who he is, and just the, the, the whole package, because he's really a truly legendary bloke. His problem is that he, f he fits a certain stereotype. Of course. Which is why it's hard to shrug off. Like even, again, him telling stories there when he's 15, 16, like working a lumber yard. I'm like... I've got images of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Commando, like in the <laughs> 80s, him walking down a hillside with a thing. Like he was just an absolute beast. And I can imagine him physically being like that age 15. My, the very first time I met Jamie, I love this story. We were playing in a preseason tournament somewhere in the south of France um, with Glasgow Warriors. And obviously his friend at the time through the Canadian team was DTH van der Merwe. Yeah. And so the we, winger, like, we, right? we, yeah, yeah. Great guy as well. But we didn't really know Jamie that well. And DTH was still to arrive. I think he had problems with his passport because he had a South African passport. Um, and so we're sitting waiting for another preseason games to, to come in. And honestly, what we thought was like the T-800 from Terminator on a big Harley <laughs> Davidson rocked into the ground. <laughs> Turned around, looked at us to find the Glasgow boys. And he was like, fellas, it's DTH here. And we we're like, no, sorry, mate. <laughs> His passport's not arriving. He's like, fucking South Africans. And he just got back on his bike and left. And we were like, amazing. I'll be back. Exactly. Like Terminator. But that's the thing. He, he fits that persona. But then if you get to chat with him, if you see him interviewed or sit down properly and chat, he's an amazing bloke. Um, terrific guy. So it was great to have him on. He plays with that image, Johnny, toys all it. the time. But that's it for us. Like young Scottish kids, we never met him before. And he rocked up on this, like the Terminator. We were like, what is this? It was like it was out of a movie. It was amazing. Um, but yeah, great guy. Great, great bloke. Brilliant to have Jamie on and hopefully all the work he's doing in uh, inter-concussion as well doesn't, doesn't go in vain. The reason why I asked him if he doesn't regret the way that he, things ended is that he, he went full on, like he is, because he's a total bloke, into a lawsuit and he would basically 
calling out people in, in the Clermont structure. Um, the reason why I, I regret a little bit the way that he did this is because the, the things that he wanted to achieve are outstanding. Nobody's ever stood up like Johnny mentioned it. Nobody's ever, ever stood up as much as him. And that's absolutely brilliant. But I do think a guy like that should have the keys to the club and be able to come in, come out. And because of the, all those tensions, all, almost that legal process, a president will come and go. A, a conditioner will come and go. A doctor will come and go. A legend like him will never go away from a club. So I just hope that he would keep the keys, you know, and be sort of not subtle, but uh, like to take a bit of wisdom enough just to, to make it a little bit more smooth so that he could still keep that. That's the only thing that worried me. But all his work, just like he said, is absolutely outstanding stuff. And if anything, I hope in a couple of years that they'll look down and be like, fuck, thank you for Jamie to, to actually have started this because he, he really started something huge. And hopefully one day, as you say, he'll be back at the Stade Marcel Michelin because after that many years of service, no one wants to see um, an acrimonious separation. So hopefully he'll be back there one day. Um, let's turn our attention to the Champions Cup final now then. Was it the best European Cup final ever for you guys, like like many have said? And I suppose secondary to that, Benji is shaking your head already. What do you make of Teddy Ribbon's performance? Because in England, I mean, we're obviously some people might be slightly biased, but he seemed to have a shocker in that first half. Did we not tell you precisely what was going to happen? Myself and Johnny. We actually said, we, we, we said precisely that. We said, listen, the belief, the pick and goes close to the line and the drive and the passion, but exit are just a little bit better than, than racing. Mate, we pretty much delivered it to you. You could have switched your TV off and that was it. <laughs> Best Champions Cup final in history? I, I clearly do not believe so. Because for me, that stage rugby needs to be played with the crowd. You can't take anything away from, from the quality of rugby that was played, which was fantastic, yes. But it's still not the same. It's still not the same. You don't know how people players would have reacted with the crowd. That's, that's all I mean. So, yes, the quality was unreal. I, I still think that there was incredible lows for a Champions Cup final from racing at some points. Mm. Incredibly big mistakes repetitively, especially that first 20 minutes, uh, which clearly did not look like racing. Um, and and so that's what makes me think that it just feels weird, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, I've been chasing this this cup for a long, long time, so I'm incredibly uh, jealous. But to lift it in those conditions is just random. Poor things. Do they deserve it, Exeter? 150 percent. But but it's it's just random, isn't it? So best Champions Cup final, definitely not. Just because how random it was. And because how many mistakes, mistakes racing uh, made. And Teddy Iribaren, sorry, came out in the press the next day, said he should have not played the game. Say that he pulled his groin at the um, captain's run the, the, the day before. I tried to come back. And at that first kick, remember that first penalty that he doesn't find touch, which was a shocker. Says he gets electricity in his groin, whatever. I, I actually do generally believe him because he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't just make something up like that. You could tell he's somebody in distress, poor thing. He, the coach wanted to take him off after 25 minutes just because he just wasn't there uh, and he got caught up by this thing. Is that not, though, the difference between extraordinary world-class players and just extremely, extremely good players? Uh, the faculty to cope with that pressure, the faculty to cope with anything happens, my groin is gone, well, I'll kick with the other leg. I have a feeling, maybe I'm completely wrong, I have a feeling this happens to Johnny Wilkinson he'll kick with the other leg and then he'll play the 80 and then he'll be out for six months win or lose whatever happens he will never even mention it if you know what i mean that's that's just the way that i see it but but obviously a shocker for him poor thing uh, really really tough psychologically 
uh, racing will have it will, it will take them a long long time to digest that one i still do believe that exeter are just just that bit better now, I'm going to go one step further on Erie Barron and Johnny Wilkinson. I reckon Johnny Wilkinson wouldn't have played the game. Maybe. Um, so I think for Erie Barron, like obviously there's a lot of pressure on his shoulders to play and perform and to lead his team, which he's done all year. But I think that lack of experience and knowing his own body in high-pressure situations and big cup moments and games, he's just made the most costly mistake of his career. And it's something he'll never forget and he probably won't get back. But that is the, the most costly mistake he's likely to ever make in his rugby career. Um, and it's cruel. Um, it's a shame um, because he's a lovely bloke. Like You speak to everyone that's played with him. He's a tremendous bloke, wants to do everything for the team. But it's just been a bad decision that's completely gone against him. And you, you think with him fit on the field, you know, when Rassing actually strung some passes together, kept ball, performed, they were cohesive they were fairly dominant. You know, Exeter were making some defensive errors that you don't normally see from them. But, you know, those mistakes from him, like missing touch to miss that line out, which would have been, you know, a pushover try or they're in the right area of the field. You know, they get turned over up the other end field. Key moments again. He chucks a ball infield, takes a quick line out throw and he doesn't have to because he's under pressure. He's scrambling, he gets turned over. They kick to the corner, they score a try. Like all of these things accumulated because he wasn't right, clearly, physically or mentally. So, it's a real shame, um, but it's happened and he's going to have to deal with it, digest it and live with it, um, the poor bugger. So it's just one of those things that's horrible, but I, I can't see him doing making that same mistake again. Um, but that's a really tough place to be in mentally, isn't it? You guys must have been there before when you've suffered injuries and you're kind of thinking this, this is the potentially the biggest day of my career. How do you go about saying I, I can't do it? At the same time, if, if, you, if your groin, groin goes, the first kick that you're kicking to touch mistake for your team you then compound that by taking a quick throw in because you're panicking you stick your hand up and say take me off I'm sorry because the more he tried and the harder he tried the worse it became from and it's not that he's not a good player he just clearly wasn't capable to play and he kept combining his mistakes and digging himself a bigger hole and that's why we saw Maxime Machinot on 20 minutes he was sent to warm up the coaching staff clearly knew but of respect for him which again they might regret of, of leaving him that time and not hauling him off um things got worse. So, I mean, a real shame. And also, was it the best final ever? <sighs> it's been talked up as that. It was some game, but it was because there was mistakes made and exceptional quality plays made by individuals on both teams. You know, it was back and forth. There were turnovers on the deck. Luke Cavendicke, um, exceptional Colombe, exceptional on the floor. It just did not stop. So it was exceptional to watch. But was it the highest quality rugby that you've seen in the Champions Cup final? I didn't think so. Was the British press is hamming it up as this, you know, outstanding spectacle. There were some huge performances. Luke Cavendicke, Johnny Hill, um, Simmons from Exeter. I mean, they were phenomenal. But the best ever? No, not for me. But loved watching it. It was incredible to watch as a game. But it was because there were, there were mistakes everywhere. And it was disjointed, I felt. On that note, I hate to like the English, but Johnny Hill, I have to say, I've Freak. been discovering him for the last two years. Wow, is he a good luck. He's incredible in the line out. He's a workhorse. I don't rarely see him make any mistakes. Um, honestly, if, if he wasn't... Well, obviously he needs to become, is he capped? I don't even know if he's capped, maybe on like a second Barbarians game or something like that. Like He went on the tour to South Africa a couple of years ago, was on the right. bench, didn't, didn't get capped. So we'll see. I, I, I he think he's know. brutally good. Brutally yeah. good. Like you say, though, uh, in every facet, all round, he can ball carry as well. For a man that size, he goes forward, he breaks tackles, he off like freak it. And you stick him next to Johnny Gray, who's been brought down on probably one of their big 
big contracts him and Hoggy brought down to make a difference, but the pair of them together just power powerhouse like that second row like as, as Jamie said they can move some furniture he's um the great pairing he had a good time after the game as well Johnny so um yeah <laughs> um and speaking of mistakes how do you guys feel about how the game ended because it was all a little bit farcical wasn't it so well the, the last minute is 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 ridiculous okay um I, I back Nigel Owens as being the best ref uh, we 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 have and that has been around for the decade because he actually straps a pair on and takes the tough decisions when they have to be made. Okay, that that's truly what I what I, my feeling that I've got him, my experience against him, <laughs> and the reason why I think he's got so much respect within rugby. I think in that final, that's just my personal point of view. Maybe I'm wrong. In that final, he did not deliver. I think the contest of Eli Klein, the, the Scottish guy, Scottish name. The number nine on the line at the what, 74th minute on Anthony Klassen, who is an absolute disgrace. I think it's an absolute disgrace. But if you turn back the clock just one minute before, remember there's the high tackle from Thomas Francis who gets a yellow. But actually, he lets the play go on and then the ball goes to the right. And then same thing happens. There's, I think it's a turnover from, uh, I think it's one of the Simmons brothers or Henry Slay. I can't remember who. And he's on the floor. All I can hear is, hands off. And then this guy that goes on the ball, rips it out, and he uh, rewards them. So hang on. When you say hands off, that means stop competing for the ball. Rewind the clock. Oh, go back. Thomas Francis uh, gets the yellow. So then they kick the touch. They do the driving ball. Pick and go, pick and go, pick and go. Onto the Klassen has a short ball. Cuts the line absolutely beautifully. Lands just short of the line. Hidalgo Klein goes into the ruck. He says, hands off. And then he rewards them for the turning point turnover of the game. Explain that one to me. So I really think that he crumbled under the pressure of those last 10 minutes to the point where that last minute is just an absolute, it just makes, he makes them remember, uh, they win a couple of seconds out of a penalty deciding whether they're going to take it or not at the 79th minute and 36 seconds. And he tells the guy, rewind the clock six seconds. Except if, if you go for post, who gives a shit if it's if it as long as it's a minute you have a minute to kick you know he, he's just going into detail for no reason so huge amount of respect for him huge amount of respect to what he's done i think in that that particular final he did not deliver and they could have had a, a, a dramatic different um outcome especially for the Ida, idaigo klein sorry uh turnover what do you reckon johnny I reckon Finch just knocked over a drop goal 30 seconds early. We won't be having this conversation. That, that was True like that. we saw drop goals for the Australian-New Zealand game last weekend. And again, you know, it's easy to sit here and say with hindsight, but if they had a little routine, they could go through underneath the post. Every team has it. I just thought he's going to knock over a drop goal. They were five meters out straight in front of the sticks. I was like, it's game over. Finn's definitely going to step up and knock it over, but it wasn't to be. So, yep, tough decisions at the end um, and wasn't to be for Rassing, unfortunately, but... Yeah, tricky to say. And again, the, the, the again, I've never seen a final or any any real game at that level finish in that manner. So it was just a kind of bizarre finish. And Toulon Bristol, Benji, you were there. To talk us through it. Um, to, to to be honest, Bristol are just a better team than Toulon at the moment. Uh, incredible talent on both sides, but just the drive, the Pat Lam uh, dimension, uh, the work that they've been doing for the last two years. In the summer, they only signed uh, Kyle Sinclair, Max Malins. Uh, what's his name? Ben Earl and Semi Radradra. I mean, seriously, is 
that's freakishly good. And then they kept on going. So the only reason why I thought really did, that's what I said to you guys last week, that they wouldn't win because of the injuries. I really thought, listen, there's just too many injuries that makes it just a little bit too good. And then from the kickoff, I'm like, listen, if, if from a kickoff, you're going to run onto the wrong guy, Semi Radala picks it out, gives it to his winger, and then they score 80 meter try, it's, it's just it's just too easy. So there is a different of class, different of speeds. It can actually reflect a lot of the, the conversations that us three have got or have been having week in, week out. I really think you saw a team, a quality team of Bristol but who is uh, used to playing fast, high-tempo rugby on the satanic pitch in Aix-en-Provence. And Toulon are a fantastic side with some quality players, but they're just not used to that high-tempo. They're not used to that high-speed high, high, high rugby. And so, fantastic teams, but that's just the difference between the two. There was a few punches, you know, so it's like five minutes, 10 points for Bristol, that's the first punch. Then you receive a few because of that. In the final, that's what happens. There's never going to be 50 points, you know. It's never completely unbalanced, okay. But then they could come back, you know, they would just absorb the pressure. And then the second half, Toulon did not touch the ball for the whole second half. Bristol dominated the whole thing thoroughly deserve the win and just play high pressure, high tempo, highly disciplined rugby. Disciplined rugby. And and, and for that, they thoroughly deserve their win. A weird experience for me because like I said to you uh, b- before the game, uh, we could not even get close to anybody. There were some really strong um, uh, sort of barriers and all that. They really wanted to be thorough about it. The only good thing is that there was a thousand people in the stands, which is more than more than something yeah which is something (laughs) which is something but it was a little bit of a heartbreak to see the bristol guys they were coming to the crowd and they were like oh yeah no there's nobody here for us and then you know they were sort of clapping you could tell they were looking for family they were looking for mates listen that's that's the rugby uh you said it three weeks ago when they played uh, exeter Uh, the guy who gets the star then there's not going to be written covid under it so it's still it's still a title it's still 150 percent deserved it's just a little bit tasteless. A little bit tasteless for me. You try and tell that to Stuart Hogg. It ain't, ta- <laughs> mate, it ain't tasteless for those boys. No chance. Yeah, like, I'd I honestly so. don't think, I honestly don't think, I honestly don't think they care. Like the work that has gone in, the story for Eck, we're going back to Exeter now, but the, the story, they've, the journey they've come on with Rob Baxter, with, with the coaches in the background, the culture, the quality, the, the drip feeding of quality into that squad and the job they've done has been outstanding. So, and, you know, we talk about teams that lose finals, like Racing, close now three times. Exeter as well have lost a few finals. Saracens, big games, big moments. Now they're there. They're there as a club, and that's what's important. That's what's important to that group. Um, the staff, um, phenomenal. And again, the Bristol game, talking, touching on coaching groups. Again, Pat Lamb, for me, now clearly one of the best coaches in the world. The job, that he, the job that he did at Connacht with like Amazing. nothing of budget, to, to win that Pro 14 with Connor was was ridiculous. Did I never mention this to you that I had him in the in, um, Barbarians that we, that week that we did we put 60 points in England? Absolute revelation for me, Pat Lam. Outstanding. I don't know, but he's he's he is a legendary coach. He's a legend. Well, okay, a week of Barbarians, so maybe he doesn't behave the same. But he was absolutely legendary. We can we'll talk later. Honestly, we we should have him on, on this podcast. He's a top dude. Very, very chilled. Um, he had a very, he had few ideas in terms of rugby strategy that I thought were absolutely brilliant. Very simple, but very brilliant. And he's the only guy who kicked out a team of a starting fifteen of Barbarians for coming f- six minutes late to a, a nine o'clock meeting 
when everybody was absolutely drenched, pissed the night before. So he said, listen, boys, drink as much as you guys, as you, much as you want. Enjoy this whole thing, but do not fuck with rugby. And he dropped Malikai Fikitoa from the starting 15 to play England after, after, after the first night out because he wrapped up six minutes late. And I think, shit, he's, <laughs> he's got balls of steel. Might and he awesome. said it with a smile, with a lot of respect, um, with a lot of honesty. I was blown away by his coaching during one week. Well, I love the Barbarians in general, but I was blown away by his coaching. I think he's outstanding. Lou, sorry if I cut you, John. No, no, mate. I completely agree. Like I was just saying, so, so con at the job he did, but clearly you've seen in one week of the Barbarians, your eyes have been opened, next level. And the job he's done at Bristol, and you, you just mentioned it, the rugby that they played, the speed, the organization, the alignment. Toulon could not live with it. It was like playing. A, it was like watching two teams playing a different sport. They were that well organized, um, and that's where I just think he's got that level of buy-in now with talent, quality, and also young English kids that are coming through. They are going to be formidable. Um, again, to quote Jamie Cobb, more formidable. Use that word. Um, <laughs> but that's it. So impressive and, and so pleased for them as well. Another team that's on a journey that battled for so long um in the second division in england but now they're here that you know they're front and center um and they've won a major piece of silverware so you know tap tops off hats off to pat lamb tops off if you like um to pat lamb and his team because they were absolutely outstanding and just very quickly before we uh before we wrap up um aside from toulon and racing there was a full round of top 14 action as well what happened to your old clubs, Johnny? Bayern and Cast. Where do you want to start? Well, <laughs> Cast, you, you, I feel sorry for them. Um, I mean, you could completely blame it on COVID. They weren't on great shape even when they started the season. But, you know, fundamentally, one month without training together or games against La Rochelle. Um, and how, how many guys are out of the squad? Mate, the, the squad they put out was half academy, half pro. Um, so you're putting out cannon fodder against some of the best players in France. You know, La Rochelle are right up there. They beat Bayonne at home last week. Really well organized, clinical, big physical men. And Cast had no answer. I mean, they got beasted in every facet of the game. But you have to say, is that a fair reflection of them? Probably not. Um, but it's just, you know, the way this year is going to be, it's going to be strange for every team and difficult to live with. Um, and that was it. They'll be embarrassed. They'll be hurt because um, that's not the image of the club they want to put out. Um, but it's just going to be the way it is. There's going to be different clubs that are going to go through phases this season with three or four or five weeks without playing. You look at Oyanax now, similar situation, Beeritz, 27 cases. It's going to be a tough old year. Um, and, and Cast are there right now, 100%. Bayon, you know, they obviously got an absolute pumping as well away to Leon, but the, it's not the game that they're looking at. Their, their game that they want to win is, is next week. They're away to Agen next week, so they've rested a lot of key players. They've got their relegation fight and to secure their fight to stay up next week away to Agen. That'll be the game that Yannick Bruin and his coaching staff have targeted 100%. So yes, they got pumping by Leon, but I wouldn't read too far into that either. We will say next week we'll discuss that and international rugby back as well. So I'm sure we're all looking forward to that. Right, well, even with no crowds, um, which is a little bit tasteless, okay, we still, I'm a huge fanatic of European rugby. I'm a huge fanatic of international rugby and I can't wait to see it finished. That said, that game, that Wales-France game, almost cost the collapse of any relationship between the Federation <laughs> and the said, league. Yeah. <laughs> and there was, oh, 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 there was already very, very little relationship, but, but, but this one almost caused it to choke completely to death. So 
I really hope they that. actually win it. Yeah. <laughs> I really, they better win it as some sort of warm-up game to then prepare a final against Ireland to finish Six Nations last year. But yeah, my international rugby is fantastic. We all love it. We, we, we myself and Johnny have played it, and it's just absolutely special. It's, it's a treat. It's, it's the pinnacle of your career, and we can't wait for actually people just again to embrace the fact that they put the smile on. They put a smile on people's faces. And in a dark, dark time, whatever there's crowd, no crowd, you're going to represent French Jersey, sing in Marseillaise, beat Fiji, beat Scotland, definitely, uh, beat, beat Ireland for Six Nations. You know, all those things, it just, just bring, put a smile on people's faces. 100%. And the thing is, we want to see the Six Nations finished off. Hmm. And then I also am really intrigued by this Autumn Nations Cup. So it's the first time now we're going to have a winter tournament that actually counts for something. So... In years past, you were bleeding young kids, giving them caps, weren't quite sure, building towards a Six Nation. Now it's competitive rugby um, and boys are going to have to stand up. So excited to see some new caps. Um, and yeah, delighted that international rugby is back on the scene. Can't wait. You've whetted the appetite very well. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Benji. And thanks to all of you guys for listening as well. Make sure you hit subscribe, leave us a review, watch us on YouTube, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Au revoir, guys. Cheers, fellas. Ciao, au revoir. Bye.